You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with John Goldberg, who's the founder and CEO of Carbon Direct. They are scaling carbon management into a global industry to combat climate change through science and software. He's got over 15 years experience in energy investing and project finance. Prior to launching Carbon Direct, he was founder and chief investment officer of BBL Commodities, a commodity hedge fund. He started his career at J.A. Ron, the commodities division of Goldman Sachs, where he managed a large where he managed a large proprietary trading book across global macro markets with an emphasis on commodities. John was a partner at Glencore, managing the firm's U.S. derivative business prior to its IPO. If you go to their website, it says, we are committed to helping organizations with carbon management from carbon footprinting to risk mitigation to carbon removal procurement. What that means is they work with big companies like Microsoft and Apple to help them meet their commitments to be carbon neutral, to be climate friendly and sustainable. These companies that aren't in that business, but generate emissions want scientific backed solutions to this. Carbon Direct provides that advisory service. They've got scientists on staff and help them weed through the potential solutions and vendors and how to go about structuring a program that will get them to deliver on their climate neutral, carbon neutral commitments. Carbon Direct just announced $60 million raise for that business, Carbon Direct Inc., the advisory side. They also have a $100 million fund for investing in growth companies. And I think they're not going to stop there. I'm hoping to grow, I'm sure. On the episode, we talk about a combination of advising and investing, how you put those two businesses together, what skills are needed in the climate space. We talk about the impact of the new law, the IRA what he thinks of voluntary carbon credits in that market, where climate founders have gaps and sometimes fall down, and some of the biggest challenges that he's gone through so far in building the company. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's it's great to see you, Miles. Yeah, good to have you on. You run a business that's advisory and investing. You seem to be approaching that in a different way than other people. And I'm wondering how you got the original idea. Uh, I, so I guess maybe by by way of, of background, you know, I kind of came to the carbon management world really first as an investor in energy markets, both traditional energy markets, clean tech, as well as your, your traditional energy. And I, I started to learn about carbon management through some work that I'd been doing outside of my previous uh, funds. I'd been doing a lot of scientific research at Columbia, some other institutions on how do you manage all of this carbon that's going into the atmosphere? How do you actually remove it from the atmosphere through engineering processes? And then how do you uh, use nature-based processes uh, to do the same? And what struck me was that the science was completely unique in managing carbon, but a lot of the market and scaling mechanisms existed in other areas. So our approach has always been that for carbon management to scale, and that's ultimately the goal of our our firm is to enable a, a vibrant carbon management ecosystem. You need both smart capital allocation, so uh, investments into technologies that really manage or remove CO2, 
as well as a, a demand signal. So as well as ways to drive the demand for carbon management and for carbon removal forward. That was the original idea behind the firm. And it's been intentional for us. You know, we didn't start as an advisory business that sort of tacked on a, a investment firm after we didn't start as an investment firm that added advisory. We've always felt strongly that both sides of the market are are quite needed. Gotcha. And when you were doing this early research, what was it that convinced you that there was a business opportunity to shift into? So one was the climate imperative. So, uh, you know, I, I've been looking at the issue as many people have, but just as an energy investor, I think I had a, a maybe more acute sense of just how big the capital needs and how big the capital requirements are for energy transition. So, you know, we invest about $2 trillion a year in oil and gas. We need to be doubling that in carbon management, broadly defined. And we were just nowhere near that level. So I think as someone who's somewhat familiar with investing in energy, I saw both the, the climate imperative, but also how far away we were in accelerating these um, things. So that, that's really driven kind of the the overall approach. And then the other key tie-in was just after getting an understanding of, and this is by working with some wonderful scientists who, who are on our team now, that this can be done, right? That these um, scientific methods can be improved, can be implemented over time. That, that kind of has driven everything. If we go back a few years when you started working on this, there were not as many people interested in investing in climate tech. In fact, a lot of people were burned by the green tech VC interest, you know, call it a decade, 15 years ago. Did you feel contrarian when you were starting this? When I was at Goldman, had invested in some of the earlier stages of, of clean tech, and I, I think certainly learned a lot about things that work, things that don't work. And that's informed some of the, what we do at Carbon Direct. Uh, but but to be blunt, like the the opportunity set and the amount of capital and the amount of uh, smart capital needed in this uh, is is pretty obvious uh, when you look at the the big picture numbers. The key was to develop the right bottoms up strategy to deploy into the space and to actually help with our advisory company scaling demand. So I think that not not so much contrarian. I think that there was a, a consensus that this needed to be done. But there's a lot of work getting the expertise and the science to actually do it well, to do it thoughtfully, to do it in a way that matters. And as you're starting the business, you're learning from these scientists. How were you able to build those relationships and build such a wonderful world-class team coming at it from the investor side? I mean, I think I'd started working with our team for 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 some people on our team for uh, for a few years actually before the company started, and that was mostly through some philanthropic work, some academic work, and I could see that there were overlapping skill sets. So I'm not, for example, a soil carbon scientist. It's it's not on me to determine how deep soil carbon measurement should be. At the same time, you know, folks on our soil team or on our forest team aren't market experts and don't have expertise in, in scaling commercially. That's not where they've been focused. So I think what's resonated to people is that like we really can take this technical knowledge, the scientific expertise that you've been building throughout your career that is so important for tackling climate, for tackling carbon management. And we can actually get this in the field. You know, it's this does not have to be limited to writing and publishing, which we're very supportive of, but are naturally limited in their actual real world impact. And I think that's resonated with with the uh, the team and the team's grown quite a bit since we started, which is exciting. And can you share some numbers on that? Yeah, so I mean, the firm's got uh, roughly 100 people now. We, we have a pretty active hiring process going on. 
And sort of firm-wide, um, we operate Carbon Direct Capital Management, which is, has an investment team of about 13 people. The balance of our folks are working within our advisory business, working with clients and or bringing scientific technolo- technological understanding to the market. So about half of our overall team are, are scientists, which is, uh, I think, a continued reflection of the importance of scientific expertise and all of the work, all the work that we do. And when you were originally raising money, for this, how important was the mission part of it versus the pure economic business opportunity in attracting capital? So the firm was started because of the imperative of, of scaling carbon management, period. And, and that's what we've we focused on. I, I would say I don't find these things to run in in contrast. In fact, I think if you're serious about carbon management, it must be commercial. We're not talking about small amounts of money. We're not talking about things that are within the realm of philanthropy to fix. We're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. So our our fund, for example, is extremely commercially oriented. We underwrite to strong returns. And we do that because we know that if the market's ever going to get the right amount of capital to achieve that, it's going to require you know real commercial returns. On the client-facing side, I mean, ultimately how we're paid is a direct derivative of the amount of CO2 that we're managing on behalf of our clients. So we, we've we've kept this quite, I think, clear throughout the firm and have not found it to be some type of either-or conversation. Well, that's good to hear. Now, when you're talking about the clients, are they potential customers of your portfolio companies as well? Is there reinforcing there? And, and how do you manage any potential conflicts between the two businesses? To some extent, our, our investment management team takes pure commercial returns and carbon impacts. We're underwriting to companies that have 100 million ton or more carbon impact um, potential when we do a deal. It is possible that companies that we've invested in will sell to uh, clients of ours, but it's not a contingency of the investment. We have a very clear disclosure process when we're actually invested in a company. I think the real the real story, though, is that it's hugely beneficial for our clients that our firm has a strong understanding of the technology landscape. And likewise, it's, it's a, a good thing that our investment team gets to work with scientists who are among the leading experts in their fields. For your customers... What is driving their interest? How often is it regulatory versus some other reason? I would say it's always a combination of things. The regulatory framework around net zero, carbon neutral, whatever you want to define it, is is really not settled yet, but customers are expecting it to become a thing. So even folks that have taken this on a purely voluntary basis, take you know Microsoft, which has been a, a great partner and been a leader in the space, you know, they're doing this as a voluntary commitment, but they're certainly aware that regulatory changes may happen over time that would impact that and they want to get ahead of those things. We see that across our different across our different customers. So I would say, you know, no one is operating in the complete absence of of regulatory considerations. At the same time, the regulations aren't clearly defined yet. So all of our, our clients are are sort of choosing to do things. Where is the smart money thinking the regulatory regime is going to go? There's not a linear answer to that, right? So what we've seen is a variety of different regulations and policies that are impacting carbon management. So on the one hand, you know, we've seen, for example, the IRA bill passed this year, which I think is 
a huge deal and if anything underrated in the market. It's providing significant support for things like point source carbon capture, direct air capture, green hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel, by essentially paying money uh, to encourage those innovations, subsidizing things. It's changing the cost curve pretty dramatically of where some of those technologies hit. What the regulatory framework is not yet doing is doing, hey, we're going to do an explicit price on carbon. Everyone, market, go figure it out. We're going to do a tax and dividend or we're going to do a tax and invest, something like that. It's it's a much more bifurcated marketplace than that. So I think it's up to us as investors to you know, figure out that one, the commercial opportunities and two, how policy might impact those. And then our customers are all obviously operating in different regulatory frameworks because they're in different industries. I mean, one one thing I guess unifying that people are looking at is, you know, the SEC has opened up for guidance on potential disclosures around carbon credits. And the markets provided comments on that. We've provided some comments on that. Basically, this will be determined if a company uses a carbon credit, how uh, will it be disclosed? And that I think is getting a lot of the market's attention. Yeah, I'd love to talk about carbon credits a little bit. But first, you you mentioned the IRA, the big legislation for climate in the US. I was talking to a CEO of a large utility saying it didn't create big business opportunities, but the value was in predictability. Would you agree with that? Or why do you think it's a big deal? Not sure I fully understand those comments, frankly. I mean, I think that there's segments of the IRA that, you know, around clean energy. So perhaps from a utility perspective, I guess I sort of see it, but I don't really see it working that way, right? When I look at some of the big IRA, uh, and I think this is a good thing, the big IRA events take, you know, the the um, tax credit for point source capture increasing to $85. You know, the policy is agnostic to the type of technology that you use, as it should be. It has defined parameters around how much carbon benefit you do, but it doesn't say you must use this technology. It's giving a clear price incentive for the technologies to be developed and then ultimately to be deployed. Same thing in hydrogen, same thing in in SAF. So I'm not sure that it's, it's certainty. It's certainty around the available revenue streams with quite a lot of innovation needed to get to those revenue streams. And I, I think that's sort of as it should be. And on the carbon credit side, there's been some conversation that maybe we can't trust the carbon credits that are being sold in the marketplace, or how do we know we can trust them? And we, we've we had one of the founders of NCX on. So for those that have been listening to the podcast for a while, they may remember that, or you can go back and listen to that episode. What, what's your view on where that's all going to end up? Yeah, I mean, if it's on a historical basis, you know, and the question is, can you trust the carbon market? The answer is no. And it's it's sort of definitively no. We've published a lot on this. In fact, it was pretty helpful in launching the company. You know, the history of voluntary credits in particular is quite bad. Credits have, have not worked for a variety of different reasons, additionality, baseline issues. It really never was purpose-fit built for the scale that's needed for carbon removal. I'd say those historical failings don't mean that carbon credits or the voluntary carbon market can't be a helpful mechanism to bridge to what we absolutely, absolutely need, which is a significant amount of carbon removal. And we need gigatons per year, multiple gigatons per year of carbon removal. And we need to scale it. And I think what we can do, and this is the point of our firm, is if you provide a, a, a clear scientific lens around how carbon credits can and cannot work, your customers then can contribute in a voluntary way to help build out what will become larger scale commercial, what will become some 
regulatory and you actually have the framework for a carbon dioxide removal system that can actually deliver. Gotcha. So turning back to your business and uh, your investment business in particular, are there any portfolio companies that you can talk about? Sure. I mean, you know, I can talk about companies that we've publicly announced that we've invested into. We, maybe just talking thematically, we invest in carbon capture, carbon dioxide removal, the conversion of CO2 into useful products and in green hydrogen. We've made investments into each of those different verticals. If I did distill it, I mean, we're, we're looking for stuff that matters. So we're looking for things that impact carbon in a significant way. By significant, I mean more than 100 million tons per year. The types of companies that we're investing in to, to address that do things such as you know capturing carbon at the point of emission. So that's what a company like Savante would, would do. We've also invested in companies that are removing CO2 from the atmosphere, both through engineering processes and also biomass conversion processes. And then we're very excited by, in part because of the IRA, but also in part because the technology cost curve, processes that are either using CO2 to convert into fuels and, and make stuff broadly defined, so fuels, chemicals, plastics, and or avoid emissions. So we're investors in a company that's using sugars to produce uh, chemicals, which is quite a large market, quite a large source of emissions. So those are our areas. And frankly, we see a ton of opportunities in each of those different areas. That's exciting. That's exciting. As, as you're building the business, do you manage the scientists or the investment team any differently? Like, have you found that the rhythms or the personalities or anything else is is markedly different between those teams? Yeah, I mean, so just to reemphasize, you know, our our, our capital management team operates and under a different company, different um, regulatory constraints than Carbon Direct Inc. So the teams are managed differently. What I'd say is cohesive is that every member of the team, whether it's in, in capital management or in Inc., wants to bring to bear their specific subject matter expertise to help with carbon management. So that could be someone who's an investment banker who's very good at doing financial modeling, but wants to work in a field where those inputs are being used to raise, deploy capital into a sustainable aviation fuel uh, company, for example. If it's a scientist, you know, the scientist is aware that we're trying to help our clients find solutions. What they're bringing to bear is, you know, they're maybe not a, a, a salesperson or a marketing person or a software engineer, but they know their field. So they know the world of reforestation, for example. And their contribution is to bring that knowledge base to the firm. And I, I think that's consistent across the firm and what kind of keeps everybody together. So mission is uniting force for people. I would say the ability to use your unique skill set in a way that aligns with the mission that people care about deeply. That I find motivates folks. Gotcha. Now you're investing in companies that have taken most or all of the technical risk out and are ready for commercialization and scaling up, right? That's right. Now, is there a need for money in that earlier stage, or do you think that's well supplied at this point? I think there's a need for money in all stages of, of carbon management, uh, frankly. I I don't think it's limited to one or the other. We've built our team with particular sets of expertise where we're most comfortable investing in slightly later stage companies than our, our venture friends would do, but there's a need for, for both things. I think it's a different discipline 
I think growth equity investing or project financing is a, a different skill set from venture investing. But I would say that we need more of both. I'd also say that we need more technical experience for people who are starting companies, whether they're early stage companies or joining or joining an existing company, you know, we would encourage human capital, particularly human capital with with specific scientific and technical expertise to to come into carbon management. It's really needed. Any specific skills or backgrounds that you think are really missing? Hearing's a big one. I think that the market's moving from like a, a process of really interesting ideas to the hard work of actually scaling stuff. So Folks who have experience in in that, I think, are going to be incredibly valued. I'd say we still need more deep subject matter expertise in the in in the physical sciences to come to bear. I, I'd emphasize both of those things. I think that oil and gas has been demonized by many, yet some of those skills you mentioned are available in that industry. Do you do you see a willingness for people to hire out of oil and gas? I do. Uh, we, we certainly have it. I, I think that the process of taking oil out of the, the ground is somewhat similar to the process of taking the CO2, which is you know, just oil is fossilized carbon and putting it back in the ground. So yeah, I, I actually think that there's quite a lot of skill sets from either oil and gas or just like the energy world, the broad energy world. It doesn't have to be traditional like petroleum engineering. And I think that there's a clear role for that. It, it's not an exclusive role. If one should not be waiting for the oil and gas industry simply to reverse things and solve all ills, that is most certainly not going to happen. But if the question is, you know, are there skill sets within oil and gas companies? So for example, folks with hydrogen experience now working within green hydrogen, we have actually a, a former shell engineer is a, a PhD and phenomenal expert in uh, how to scale green hydrogen systems. So these are hydrogen that doesn't use fossil energy and doesn't emit CO2 when it combusts. We, we love that skill set. We think it's incredibly valuable and, and would hope Folks with that skill set, find us because uh, we can put it to good use. And do you see any particular areas of opportunities for founders uh, or aspiring founders who want to get into the area and looking for a place to contribute? Yeah, I mean, I think our interest is is mostly with like the founders who have expertise in a physical vertical carbon management. So folks that are working on point source capture, folks that are working on, you know, CO2 conversion pathways. One of my colleagues uh, comes out of a, a Stanford lab that we actually invested in one of her former classmates uh, company, a company that's that's upgrading CO2 into products. Like th- those those types of, of folks, we, we absolutely would love to see starting more early stage technology. It's really exciting to see as well. That That's kind of where we're focused. It doesn't mean that there's not a huge role for people with you know, business backgrounds, et cetera. But as a firm, we're mostly focused on those areas. So you're saying a scientist turned founder. Yeah, what we, we've seen that's worked well is like some combination of a scientist plus, we actually have a couple of examples of this where a scientist met in grad school, someone from, it doesn't have to be from the business school, but just in the cases that we're looking at, really, really talented scientists, partners with, MBA candidate or or business person at at the school, both of whom share a commitment to the technology that we're they're developing. We found that those partnerships to be really healthy, where you can combine that deep technical expertise with someone who can run the numbers and run the business. You know, we've invested in a company called Airco, Air Company, also a company called Twelve, both of which kind of fit that bill of 
super technical founders plus commercially savvy founders. And it's been, it's been quite powerful, actually. We had Paul, founder and CEO of Remora Carbon on the podcast, and he was an undergrad when he reached out to another university, got in touch with his co-founder who had the deeper scientific technical expertise. So uh, there's another example I wonder if there's any best practices about building those kinds of relationships. It's, I, I think it's really cool to see. I think that not sure that there's best practices or dynamics are, are different. What I would say is to make sure that the, just like the technical founder needs real technical skills, the, the commercial founder, as the companies are growing, either needs to have or be willing to invest in their own education, if you will, in that the financial modeling, the financial reporting the sort of CFO level responsibilities that you'll either need to do or oversee need to be very much up level as you're going across the capital stack. So, you know, what's expected in a series B, series C or later round are different from earlier stage. And I would encourage the commercial founder to make sure that they're, make sure that they're all over that. What do you see as being missing or where have people fallen down in their CFO type skills as founders? I would say a lot of it is just like pure financial modeling. It sounds kind of boring and dry, but especially if you're in like a carbon tech area, over time, your money is your company. Even if you're a licensing company is likely going to consume significant amount of capital that could be on balance sheet or it could be off balance sheet, but really understanding that and then how that might understand, you know, per share valuation of your company where that other capital is coming from. Are you getting partners to put it up? I think that's probably the biggest miss we've seen from early stage companies that haven't appreciated the different types of capital and how that capital restructured as their company grows. So for a founder who recognizes, oh, I don't know if I am solid on that. Any recommendations on how they can get better? I think the founder needs to get better because the founder can be focused on, if it's a technical founder in particular, should be focused on scaling that technology. There are people that you can hire to to do that. I think you just need to make it just as important as it is to hire your great sort of lab partners to develop your electrochemistry approach. So too is it to get the right financial team, the right sales team. Gotcha. Now you mentioned a company 12. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what they do and why it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I I, I guess to, to talk a little bit, I'll start with just our, our connection to it because I think it's a, a kind of a, a cool part of what, what Carbon Direct does. Um, Stephanie, who's a scientist who was on our, initially on our advisor team, but actually has come over to our uh, uh, investment team over time, was in the same lab at Stanford as three founders of 12. She initially kind of brought the the company's attention to our investment team, and they're in the carbon transformation business. So, so what that means is, you know, CO two is is kind of known now um, as being a pollutant, a gas that stays in the atmosphere for a long time, and with that, creates all sorts of problems, um, higher temperatures, things like that. And the challenge with CO two is both the overall emissions, so the stock of CO two in the atmosphere as well as the flow. But in some cases, carbon is actually an incredible feedstock and input into different products. And those products are really important. Some of those products are like fuels. Some of the products are chemicals. 12 is doing a variety of these different things. They've done CO2 upgraded into fuel. So a lower carbon, or in some cases, carbon negative, depending on the life cycle analysis of the particular type of CO2 they're using, negative fuels. They've also been active in some plastics and polymer 
marketplaces. So it's an example of a company that's really excited for us because you're not looking for someone to sort of pay you for a waste product to remove the CO2. You're literally getting a valuable economic output with a, a, a lower zero or in, in potential cases, negative carbon footprint that has obviously huge economic incentives. It allows it allows the company to scale more quickly. And we've been pretty excited because you know we've seen folks like Alaska and Microsoft, who are also partners of ours on the, the carbon directing side, work with 12 on sustainable aviation fuel. So it's, it's a really incredible company and we've been excited to, to work with them. When you're talking about making fuel literally out of thin air, it sounds to me like magic, like a perpetual motion machine. So fortunately it's not magic. You know, CO2 is, is involved and is a, a, a part of many, many different products. It, it's really that the challenge is not so much like carbon dioxide as a, a thing. It's the second most abundant in, in the world. The, the challenge is like we have too much of it emitted from specific processes, namely the emissions and combustion of fossil fuels. So, you know, it, it, it only sounds sort of magical because we've started, we, we started the industrial process by emitting so much CO2. Actually, like the, the chemistry of it's fairly well-defined. And because of this, we, we've got a heck of a lot of CO2 around. So, yeah. you know, the key thing is is using that, either removing that CO2 in a cost-effective way, or in the case of 12, utilizing that CO2 in a way that's cost-effective, addresses big markets like jet fuel, and can do so at economic prices over time. So, I mean, listen, it's 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 a amazing sort of part of the marketplace. The key in all of these is to not make it appear to be, and certainly not cost it like it's magic. You know, we are firm, firm believers that like long-term, this green premium, if you will, needs to be zero or negative. Uh, you'll see small batches of buyers who are willing to pay more for a, a lower carbon product, but you don't see that at scale. So when we look to back founders like the team at, at, at like the team at 12, like Atosha, like Nicholas, like team, it is because they've gotten an ability to drive that cost curve down over time. I want to underscore this point. I think it's a really important one. You're saying in order for green solutions to go to scale, they need to be cheaper than the alternative. Cheaper the same price. So there's certainly a segment of the market that will pay, including the companies that I, I mentioned. You know, there there's a Shopify is another partner of ours who has has paid premium prices for sustainable aviation fuel to lower their scope three emissions. The, the big caveat to that is at scale, right? So that's fine for niche launches. It's fine for small batches of products, but we use 100, more like 90 billion gallons per year of aviation fuel. It's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of expenses. That expense is mainly borne by airlines. Airlines have very small profit margins, single digit percentages. So they are not going to, nor will they be able to, just double the cost of their aviation fuel. They'd go out of business. So this is a, a very important point. It's absolutely central to our, our investment process, and we only invest that way. Do you think that's broadly agreed on in the marketplace, or is that is that still a minority view? Interesting. I don't know. I think, I think most people are waking up to this fact. I do think that there's niches of the market that would take a more permissive view on green premium, but and you're seeing some sort of concessionary capital, like we're a big fan of what um, the Gates' group is doing on on Catalyst. For example, they put up a, a loan recently to Lanza Tech, which is another really, really strong sustainable aviation fuel company that had a lower than expected market return on some debt financing, which is exciting. 
but they're intentionally doing that. They know that it's lower than expected because the purpose of it is to, to drive this. So I think it's understood, maybe not widely understood. Why is aviation fuel so important? There's not clear ways to decarbonize it. So batteries work well for car transport. Um, they're working slightly better now for trucks, although there's still some duration challenges there. Batteries are too heavy to work at scale for commercial aviation. They'd actually work fine for short haul stuff. And a few Yale graduates of, of friends of ours, Miles, who are working on companies like that, which is very, very exciting. But for the larger for the larger planes, there's not a good option. SAF is a drop-in, so it, it works within the existing infrastructure and it's growing. So it's about two and a half percent per year of global aviation of global emissions, excuse me. And it's also growing at a two to three percent rate per year. And it doesn't look like COVID really dented that too much. So it's not the only important thing and it's not the only thing we focus on, but it's clearly quite important. Gotcha. I think when people think about carbon, they're often thinking about transportation, mobility. Yep. What What are the other categories that you think the average person is not realizing needs to change? Industrial stuff. I, I'd say steel, cement, heavy industry. You know, So for example, we're investors in carbon capture technologies that you license the technology to a cement factory and that cement factory puts the carbon capture technology on and, and it avoids the tons of CO2 from coming into the atmosphere. These things are massive polluters. I mean, we're talking, you know, for even for medium-sized factories, about 2 million tons per year. I, I don't think this captures the public sort of appetite in the same way that cars do because people drive cars but not tend not to operate a cement plant. So I, I think heavy industry is really the one that people aren't focused up enough on. There's focus on this, but, you know, agriculture is also a very, you know, big area that needs to be addressed. So, but heavy industry would be where I would say there's not enough focus relative to the need. Uh, PwC did some interesting work on this where I think they showed about 80% of the capital and clean tech investing was going to about 20% of the emissions. So we're investing very heavily in areas that aren't really driving really driving the majority of emissions. And, and we're hoping that changes over time. When you're thinking about these money flows, you know, one of the questions that comes up is about where is the money coming from? And certainly in the environmental or green advocacy side, there's a lot of talk about boycotts or this sense of purism about like being purist about where, where the money is coming from. And do you have any advice for entrepreneurs on like if there are types of investors that they should not have on their cap table if they're doing this kind of company? Or is, is that really a red herring? Not a huge fan of like sort of simplistic, you know, we're not going to take money from this group or we will take money from this group. I think the world's much more complicated than that. And those heuristics work poorly. I guess what I could say is, you know, as a firm, you know, when we look at taking in clients and we, we don't take in all, all, all clients is putting them through, not putting them through, but, but analyze, you know, has the person that is either investing into you or for whom you are going to work with, have they made a net zero commitment? Is a serious one? Is it backed up by specific dates and actions? Have they done what they've said they were going to do in the past, right? What makes up that commitment? Is it is it something that's been thought out or something sort of random, right? Why are they working with you or investing into you? So, you know, we've certainly had clients, we run a, it's what we call a greenwashing screen, and actually, Carbon Direct has recently hired a phenomenal person who's our first head of climate and environmental justice, who's helping us both 
on the client intake um, side and also on our investment side. We, we run these things through a process, but we don't start with, we're never going to work with an oil company. Or we're never going to work with a mining company. Or we're never going to work with a fashion company, or we're never going to work with a soil company. We, we evaluate those opportunities as they come within that same greenwashing. So it's more about individual actions that that particular company or investor has taken in the past. For us, that's right. What's been the biggest challenge as you've been building this? There's a lot to do. I mean, that's exciting, right? But there's there's just no shortage of things to learn, science that develops over time, which is awesome to, to learn about. But you know, you want to make sure that you and the team are staying on top of all of that work. We have an amazing group of people working, but obviously when you're scaling a company of with people of different backgrounds, different academic backgrounds of different expertise, you know, you want to make sure that everybody's aligned on the same, on the same page. It's been great for us remote in that we've been able to find and attract and hire people from all over, but it's always nice to get folks together in person. We actually last week had our um, uh, all hands where everybody actually got together in like a physical space. And I thought that was really rewarding. You know, it's nice to just be able to stand up and ask someone in, in 3d, you know, what they think of a particular thing and not set up a zoom call to do it. So uh, I don't know. I, I think a lot of companies are probably grappling with that and some of it's good and some of it's challenging. Anything you wish you could have told yourself as you were just starting out? I think we're still just starting up. Um, you know, the, the company is about two and a half years old, but we, we've got a ton of work ahead of us. No, I mean, I, I think keeping the, the scientific commitment to carbon management strongly held is what's going to keep us keep us doing the, the the right type of work, but also keep us commercially focused on what, what matters, which is those tons of CO2 managed, removed in a, in a fair way. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Is there somewhere online people can follow up to learn more about you or the company? Yeah, we're, we're just at, at carbondirect.com, carbon-direct. And on there, there's information about our advisory firm. There's a separate website about the work that we do in investing. We're hiring. So there's there's information on the website about all the wonderful roles that we have. And the other thing that I didn't mention that we're trying to do as a firm more of is, you know, we've got a lot of, of scientists and, and technical folks on the team. We like sharing publicly information that, about stuff that we've worked on. Yesterday, it, it, it was announced, you know, Apple announced that we've done some sustainable aviation fuel work with them. We're going to be publishing some findings there. We publish a, some work with Microsoft on how do you do high quality carbon removal. So people are just like kind of interested. Please check that out. Thank you so much. Great to see you. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.